When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Dr. Drew, and you are listening to This Life with Bob Forrest and Dr. Drew. Here we are. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, gather around. It's time for the next podcast of This Life with Dr. Drew. Bob, you've changed your voice. What happened? Are you transitioning? (laughs) I might be, but no. No, No, you're not planning to. Shelly Sprague here. Shelly Sprague is here sitting in for Bob, and we appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Yes, I'm happy to be here. Good. I'm happy to be here. Bob has handed off to you for a little while. So uh, everything good with you? Yes, everything is great. Everything is so exciting. We're just, you know, working so hard Mm. and trying to, you know, get all these new things going up and running and helping people, you know, recover from addiction and other things, you know, obviously we have a lot of dual diagnosis stuff and people who are, you know, struggling. So um, it it is very, very hard, but, you know, we just keep it up every day. You know, we change one person's life. We change Thousands of people's yeah, it, lives. It, keep, it carries you to the next day, doesn't it? What it do does. Mean? It does. So today we're going to sort of focus on, in a way, post-traumatic stress disorder. We're, we, this is in the heels, of course, of the uh, shooting outside of Denver, that school shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, did that affect you at all? Yes. These these affect me deeply. Yeah, I figured. Uh, they yes, affect me deeply because, obviously, I have a child who is in high school. Mm-hmm which always brings it back to thinking about how our society and how culturally this has happened and continues to happen and what we're doing about it. Do you do you feel like I do that at least a chunk of this is untreated mental health issues or mental health issues that were in, not I don't want to say improperly managed that just weren't fully managed. You know, families in denial that kind of stuff. It, I I believe that it's it's a cultural phenomenon at this point, yeah. but it is, it it's is at risk. It is. It. Yeah. Right? But it, I think that it is mental health. Yeah. I mean, what else? I mean, unless we've moved into another cultural era where mass murder has now become the norm. Yeah. I am not aware of that. Not, nor am I aware that it's normative behavior. In I, other words, people, I can't imagine I mean, think of the kid, that it the, is. The kid down in Florida was severely ill, got away from his treatment team because his mother died. No way to force him back because he's right, an adult. because he's an adult. He unravels. Mm-hmm. This kid in mm-hmm. Denver or, or you know near, near, near Columbine, this kid, mental health issues all the way through. Seeming completely untreated, it seems like. I do risk assessments for the greater part of my day. Yeah. And my risk assessments include questions about are you being bullied? Have you been bullied? Are you suffering from any uh, mental health issues? Do you feel depressed? Are you anxious? Are you agitated? These are the things I do all day long. And I see people who would benefit from a psychiatric team and an inpatient level of care. But they won't do it. But they're not willing to do it. However, I do send them anyway. Yeah. I, I send them to UCLA but if, there, I, there's, if there, I feel like they're high risk. I, I, I hope so. And I, I hope, I hope the, the fact that they get in, I think it's fantastic. But the biggest problem is because gravely disabled is such a narrow, narrow. thing, mm-hmm. they don't go in. They just go, ah, screw you. I don't want, I'm angry well, with you too. Actually, I've been able to get people in by sending them with a note saying, this is what the client's presenting with. I would really appreciate an assessment. I do think this person needs to be treated at a higher level of care. That outpatient isn't the appropriate level of care for this person at this time. Um, Are there enough beds? Mm, yeah. I, I mean, if they don't, if if I don't tell the uh, staff that I'll take them, if they don't take them, yeah, yeah. then they take them. Got it. And they stabilize them. But of course they become, they unravel quickly. I've noticed that Folks who have significant mental illness, what they do is they have about a two-week to three-week cycle where they decompensate, and then they then 
they come into care, then they re reattune and then get back on their regimen and then they're better and then they decompensate. There's a high level of decompensation that I think that's where the missing piece is. Because they don't take their meds. They don't take their meds yeah. and they're not being monitored so properly. No Let's bring in our first guest, Chad Robichaud. He is a former Force Recon Marine pro MMA champion, founder of Mighty Oaks Foundation. Mighty Oaks is a peer-to-peer healing organization for veterans suffering with PTSD. You can go to mightyoaksprograms.org. Chad, welcome to the program, our program. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Welcome, Chad. And Chad had a crazy story. With Maybe you want to just tell your story and talk to us about, about uh, Mighty Oaks. Yeah, well, Mighty Oaks really started with uh, as a pay-it-forward effort when I came home from Afghanistan. And, and uh, you know, if I could go back a little further. My, my father was a Marine as well. My son Hunter is a Marine. So three generations of Marines in my family, my son's deployed to Afghanistan right now, being the third combat vet mm. in my family. But my, my father came home and struggled with a lot of things. I think many warriors struggle with today, likely post-traumatic stress, although I don't think he was ever diagnosed, but I grew up in a very dysfunctional home as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, joined the Marine Corps at 17 years old with definitely some childhood, uh, Trauma. Issues that were unresolved yeah. uh, right. from, you know, physical abuse. Uh, I had a, a brother a year older than me who was shot and killed as a teenager. So I went Sorry. into the Marine Corps really looking for a clean slate at life and uh, made it to be a, a force reconnaissance Marine. I made it to onto a joint special operations command task force, which is kind of like the, the pinnacle of uh, in special operations. And so uh, very privileged for the opportunity. And I got to do eight deployments uh, in that capacity over a pretty rapid period of time. Wow. And, uh, during, during those years of deployments, I, uh, started initially, initially dealing with just a very intense personality, uh, very angry driven. It worked really well in Afghanistan because I worked in a very small special operations community and, uh, that anger and intensity, it, it helped us. I believe it helped us do our job very well. However, uh, that wasn't, uh, you know, switch. You could flip and come back home and, and be a husband and father and, you know, you're, just typical uh, average civilian. And so coming home, it was a, a complete disconnect uh, that anger would make it into my home. And it was very, uh, my family really suffered with me being just a tyrant in my home. Uh, no, but you're, just, you're putting it, you're shining a light on not just PTSD, but that, that transition to civilian life is poorly attended to by the military, isn't it? It, it, it is. I mean, it's, uh, you have to think like I'm in Afghanistan one day uh, under constant you know, doing operations that my life's, you know, my life, my team members' lives are very high risk and doing things that are you know, pretty insane. And then 24 hours later, I'm, I'm back home, you know, walking and my, my wife's cooking dinner and my kids are running around doing their normal thing. And there's just really no reacclimation. Yeah. And, do, uh, you know, do, what, for me, you, that person, like, and I can give you many examples, like my, my home, it's a shame for me to say but my home was not a safe place for my family. Like my wife and children were scared of me. Mm-hmm. I always share this story really just to give an, uh, a picture of what my life was like at that time. My daughter was having a birthday party. I came home from Afghanistan. She was so excited because I was going to be back for her birthday. And she's just said the one little thing because she's very opinionated and that's just who she is. But she didn't like the icing on her cake. And I grabbed a handful of my little girl's birthday cake and threw her cake against the wall. Yeah, destroyed boy. my little girl's birthday. And yeah, that was boy. just how I behaved at that time. And so my reaction, instead of addressing those things, were just to distance myself, right. really to protect them. And so being deployed was much easier than being home and having to integrate with my family. Right. Yeah, question, that's Shelley? difficult. Yeah, and my question was, do they have any programs when you do come back? Is there any kind of debriefing uh, available for you guys? Well, all the branches are different. All the commands are different. For me at that time, there was nothing like that. Uh, okay. Now I, I participate in a lot of programs. Okay. We offer as a foundation lots of programs to help people reintegrate. Right. I think the Air Force probably does it the best okay. of all the branches I've seen okay. for uh, for their yellow through the Yellow Ribbon Program. Okay. However, it's still not a very big transition piece, mm. and people still suffer just like I did. Yeah. The reason I brought this up related to PTSD because for me this was a, a gradual transition from anger and ang- anger and frustration mm-hmm. to anxiety. Uh, in different different levels of just being unchecked, untreated, that resulted in me having physiological symptoms right. of pan- panic attacks. Right. It started with my arms would go numb, my face would go numb. I'd feel like my throat was swelling shut and I couldn't breathe. Right. I, mean, I didn't you were, know you at were the such time. A, you were such a charged autonomic state. I mean, your body was in this yeah, constant, the fight or flight. constant state of arousal. Of course, it flips into panic once in a while. 
Yeah. Yeah. For me, uh, the, my particular job, I wouldn't go back on a base. So I lived in the Afghan community within the homes of the, and ate dinner with their families and played soccer with their kids. And I, I wasn't, so I was 24 seven in this state and many of the guys I worked with were there too. Mm. And so when this started happening to me, I didn't want to say anything because I felt like the guys who I worked with would think I was weak and I'd be pulled out of my job. So my initial reaction was just to try to hide it, push it down and push through, which most people in that career field would do. Mm-hmm. And most people in the military try to do. And, I think, a lot, so I I think a lot of guys and gals also go into security or law enforcement to kind of keep that whole thing going. Is that, you think so? Chad? Oh, for sure. I yeah. mean, it's a, uh, I mean, the, the, you mean military guys transitioning into yeah. law enforcement? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're trying to stay in the, you know, something you're familiar with and yeah. high stress jobs feels right. If you could keep yeah. pushing you and stay in that state, Especially, it feels yeah. more comfortable with the central actually- nervous systems being so activated. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, um, you're almost like not having to deal with feelings when you're in these heightened states. Well, you're, you're the only feeling you need yeah. to worry about exactly. is, is arousal. And then when you come back down, you kind of crash, crash yeah. and then that, and then the- well, also by when you come down, you can sort of maybe get a flood of whatever else you've been experiencing. Of course, yeah. of course. And then yeah. that unconscious kind of unlocks and then you have all that flooding coming in. Mm-hmm. It's difficult, very difficult. And that, that was definitely the case with me. For me, it, it progressed to a point to where I started forgetting things. I almost had like these out-of-body experiences, which I just can't even really explain to put into words. Yeah. My so body that, almost felt like absent from my physical presence. Right. So right. That's, that's called dissociation. That's, that's once, that's a, a, even a more primitive mechanism. That's something we share with reptiles. They, it's the freeze response. And in total shutdown freeze, your brain turns off. So literally you are out of body. Yeah, that's how I felt like while operating in Afghanistan. And it was a moment that I woke up almost like a, out of a, a fog for about a two week period. Mm-hmm. And I recognized that I was putting not only myself in danger, but other people. So I spoke up, said something. I was brought home. I was put before a clinical psychologist and diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Sure. Okay. And that, and that actually began the darkest part Ooh. at that point, mm-hmm. because for me at that time, the only way I've been able to kind of put into words how I felt like the imminent state of panic I was in at that moment was like if I was handcuffed to the bottom of a swimming pool and could see the air and like trying to get a breath of air and you just never drown. You never die. That's how I felt like 24 seven. And I was terrified to tell people how I felt, even my psychologist. And on top of that, I felt completely ashamed because I was doing what I believe to be a very important job and had a tremendous amount of responsibility and I failed at it. And so I'm dealing with the feeling my body's going to physically die. I'm feeling ashamed. And my wife and my counselor are trying to find something for me to do. And this is where the MMA came in because martial arts is something I had done since I was five years old. I was already a professional fighter. And so Dr. Drew, when you talk about that transition for me, instead of anything else for me, it was if I could get into something that would keep me, uh, making me feel masculine again, Mm -hmm. feel purposeful again, it would, it would help. And honestly, uh, I love jujitsu. I've done it my whole life. I've won a world title. I, but this for me at the time when I got on those mats and start training, I felt like I found a cure because I couldn't think about Afghanistan. It actually calmed me. Definitely. But, you the, know, you could have a medicine, like you said earlier, you could have medicine for something and you could abuse it like drugs or alcohol. And that's what I did with jujitsu. I just totally abused it and, and really hid in it for a period of about three years. And well, and to really be fair, it's, it's not what you call an effective treatment. It's just no, a temporizing. It's, it's harm avoidance. It's, yeah, it's, it's replacement, replacement therapy. Yeah. You know, you're exactly. replacing one thing with the other. And uh, that can be temporizing and that can be good so you get to the place where you can deal with stuff. It's a little bit, it's better. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. I hear his externalization when he came back mm-hmm. of his anxiety and then the internalization mm-hmm. of the anxiety, which the internalization is very, very painful um, because it's so much agitation turned so much inward. Stuff. So much stuff. Yeah, it's very difficult to manage. Woo. That's quite a story, Chad. Yep. And, and then you, when did you establish the uh, Mighty Oaks? Well, after things got much worse, uh, <laughs> after about a three-year period of not really dealing with that, and the success of MMA actually made it worse because of I had no accountability. I just had people lifting me up, telling me what I wanted to hear and not what I needed to hear. Mm. And that led to me and my wife being separated and divorced. Mm. Uh, and I, I had been in an affair. Uh, and my wife and I had two very different reactions. My wife uh, – really she was fighting for our family. For me, I found myself in a closet with a pistol in my hand, uh, trying to decide if I want to live or die. And, mm-hmm. um, I really had made this decision or came to this conclusion that 
I was the problem. And that if I could remove myself from the situation, my family would be sad without me, but they would be better off. That, that's and, uh, a that's a dangerous place for people thought when people are suicidal because that's that's usually the last. Yeah, thought. that's actually yeah. that's actually a very strong warning mm-hmm. sign that my family would be better off without me. Mm-hmm. That's a very strong warning sign. So having you know being in the closet with a pistol, I I see that you can you somehow came to terms with your situation. What what happened? Was that your bottom right there? Yeah, I would have. My, I remember having my family pictures on the floor in front of me, and and uh, my, one of these moments. The reason I didn't do it, one, I don't know if I had the courage, but I knew my son, my oldest son, that's in Afghanistan, had the only key to my apartment, and so I knew he was going to find me, and that thought was kind of delaying me. Mm. My wife knocked on my door, and we, and uh, I actually, you probably find this interesting because my wife would have never seen that pistol, but I actually hid it under a blanket, like a child would hide something for being maybe shameful. Mm-hmm. And I said, so I hid that pistol. I went and answered the door and my wife asked me a, a pretty radical question that changed my life. And uh, she asked me how I could do everything I did to become a recon Marine, uh, the training, the schools, the attrition rates that overcame the deployments, the MMA stuff, cutting all this weight and training for these fights, like how I could do all of those things that require discipline. And when it came to my family that I quit. And that question for me, it just cornered me and led me to make a pretty radical choice. And that was to get back in the fight. Mm. And, uh, and that, that thought was followed by a mit- the mentorship of this guy named Steve Toth, who uh, stepped in my life and he challenged me on a, a very important factor for my recovery, which is the absence of my faith. I had really, I had written a, like a plan of how I was going to fix my life and slid it over to him. And we had first met him. This is when I first met him and he slid it back over to me and told me I was going to fail. And he tapped on that paper that I wrote and he said, if this thing doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God, I'm not going to waste your time. I'm not going to let you waste mine. And uh, maybe that's not the case for everyone, but for me, uh, we have a saying at Mighty Oaks Foundation, the work that we do with veterans, if what you're doing isn't working, then why not try something different? I tried the pills. I tried the counseling. I tried sports and replacement therapy, like you said. Mm-hmm. None of those things worked, and it was time for me to try something different. And so this guy, Steve, uh, started beginning to mentor me, and it re- the restoration of my faith began. I found restoration of my family. I found hope for the first time, and I found what I think I sought my whole life and needed I think what we all need in life and that's purpose. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, that purpose was sharing what I had discovered with others. For me, it was like, if I was dying of cancer and Steve Toth, this guy, Steve gave me the cure. Like I felt obligated to share it with others. And so that's been my purpose ever since. And, and ultimately it was the birthing of our foundation of Mighty Oaks foundation. Were there, simply to pay, pay was, forward. was there a community associated with this gentleman's uh, work with you? Well, my wife was in this church uh, when we separated and she began to go in there and she said she would, you know, go, people would tell me the story, how she would go in there and pray for me. And I always ask, like, how could you pray for me when I was doing this to you? And she said she would just pray like, God, let me see Chad the way you see Chad. Let me forgive Chad the way you forgive Chad. Let me love Chad the way you love Chad. So this is a strong woman fighting for her family and surrounding herself by the right people. And so Steve was part of this church and uh, he was an elder. He wasn't an MMA fighter, a military guy. He was a small business owner who just happened to agree to meet with me. Well, and, I think uh, it's I think it's super interesting that almost all recovery requires the same things that I you're know, exactly right? talking about, right? which is the fact that we need community. We we the need a mentorship. With individual, yeah, connect with somebody. And we need to we need to give what we've been given and help others to recover. And have some kind of faith or something. Yes, faith and, and purpose. And so those are all of the components of recovery and it just is interesting that to recover from pretty much anything, mm-hmm. you know, psychologically or or physically or emotionally we we need all of those components and and it stands to reason that that is what promotes recovery i also yeah. believe that promotes resiliency as well the same components that we found help people recover or provide a strong resiliency in individuals and you know after founding mighty oaks we've had 2600 guys come through our recovery program that we have at four ranches around the country uh, that we offer our veterans active duty and, and spouses, but on the resiliency side, I, I've, I travel around the world to military bases and speak on re- resiliency, combat resiliency, all these different components. And I've been able to speak to well over a hundred thousand active duty troops Wow! and uh, just see the results of, of, uh, of people that make decisions in the beginning to put these same principles in place in their lives before combat, before traumatic experience, before the hardships of life, and are able to be more resilient. It doesn't mean they won't struggle, but they know how to bounce back 
when they do. Yeah. Thinking of bouncing back, we have a second guest, your attorney, defense attorney, Brian Claypool. It's Claypool Law, Brian? Is that the website? Claypool Law Firm. ClaypoolLawFirm.com. Yeah. And Brian was in the middle of the Las Vegas shooting. And you've had PTSD symptoms since, right? Yeah, I'm I'm still struggling still. big time, man. Mm. I mean, I, it's I, been I, a year, right? It's been over a year. Um, I actually was in therapy uh, for about a year after the shooting. Then I took a couple months off toward the holidays, and and I and I regressed and uh, needed help again. And now I found an incredible mass trauma specialist. If you don't mind me mentioning her name, she's sure. fantastic. Sure, Anita Avedian, mass trauma specialist. She's a master. Yeah, she's she's actually uh, counseled in mass trauma. Wow. So that's really helped me a lot. But her yeah. name's Anita Avedian, and uh, boy, I got to tell you, Drew, it's even the last few weeks. Good. Just been. It's been hard though. It's been hard for me. Is um, it all just you and her together? Is it's, there it's just me, feedback? Me, like that? me and her. But uh, I, I got to tell you, I mean, this is like. I feel like I'm walking around with uh, 20 pound sandbags on my shoulders. Mm-hmm. That's the best analogy I could give you. Mm-hmm. Just getting here today, mm-hmm. uh, a struggle. Getting, for example, to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Came back from a trip to Washington, D.C. My, my daughter, my little girl you've met, she performed at the Kennedy Center. Came back. It was great. But, man, I, my refrigerator was empty. Just to get up the energy. To go to a grocery store, I, it's so hard for people to understand. I just is, is, it, is it better since this therapy? It, yeah, the therapy's yeah. been helping me because it's helped me, for example, understand that I'm not in the same place I was before right. the shooting. So what my therapist is trying to get me to do is, is, is to not torment myself because I'm not the way I was before. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where I'm killing myself. Mm-hmm. He's like, acceptance. why am I? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Acceptance is a great word. Yeah, why? Instead of like, why am I not as as you know vigilant in court? Why am I not getting to the grocery store? Why am I not wanting to go on a date, for example? Mm-hmm. Instead of instead of doing that, she's trying to get me to to just be aware of where I'm at now. That that I don't have a solid foundation now. It's not going to get fixed anytime quick. So, so on the line we've got Chad Chad Robichau. He's a former recon marine. And he had a big PTSD syndrome, and now he has a foundation. I'm, I'm wondering, Chad, if you have anything to offer or words for Brian. Yeah. So one of the things that we often find when people come to our program, and people like like you know you uh, you Brian who have had an incident, or whether it's you know military, which we deal with, or people that deal with life, I believe there's no the military does not have a monopoly on trauma, by the way. Uh, and so someone that might be struggling with some of the things that you're facing is not to have a singular approach. So a lot of people that come to our program will have a clinician that are prescribing medicine. So they'll have a psychologist uh, to have multiple approaches. So, you know, you have a great, it sounds like you have a great uh, clinician that's giving you a therapist who's giving you some good advice and counsel. Uh, p- plugging into peer groups are important. Uh, one of the things that I'll tell you that we do that have found a tremendous amount of success is te- teaching people how to make decisions in response to their trauma. And, and it, and what I mean by that is when we have guys come to our program, they will point every hardship of their life and every struggle of their life back to a specific incident. So let's say you're saying I'm not vigilant in court because this happened to me back in the Vegas shooting. And I would, I would argue that the, what you're the not being vigilant in court has nothing to do with what happened in Vegas shooting, but how you, re, how you responded to that. Well, can, can acceptance of responsibility uh, brings it back into your court to say, you do have a choice. You do have control. Now, that's easier said than done. Understanding what those choices are and how to control those things is where the yeah. mentorship really comes into place. Yeah. Can I ask everybody a question? Because the biggest issue I'm having right now, and it's really beating me down, is anytime I get any kind of ailment, a headache, for example, I'll give you a great example. I have migraine headaches over the last couple of weeks. So I immediately go to a place. Catastrophize. This is a brain it's, tumor. It's a brain I'm gonna, tumor. Exactly. I, I, I drove my neurologist crazy, yeah. my, yeah. my uh, general practitioner crazy. Yeah. And I, if I could share a story with you, and then you guys could respond. I, about a week ago, I was with my daughter, and uh, I was in tears. I'm like, I, 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 don't know. I said, I don't know, honey, if I could do this. She's like, what are you talking about? I said, I think I might have a brain tumor, and I don't have the energy to fight. Okay, I'm emotional about it right now. I, mm-hmm. so I just can't fight this. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to fight it. And then my daughter looked at me and she said, you, you were able to fight in Vegas to save your life to see me again. Why can't you fight to, to beat this tumor? Right. I mean, if you can, like, like yeah. okay, so I don't think I have a tumor. Right. Right. <laughs> right. But this is like, it's like, <laughs> well, what do you guys well, think? Drew, don't you think 
around the brain injury aspect. Like yeah. when you have a major trauma, it's a brain injury. Bra- it's a yes. brain injury. Yeah, totally. And you feel broken. I think yeah. that people are not really s- informed appropriately about how the brain works and how emotional and traumatic experiences are so, stored so and walled it's, off. It's actually stored in your, it's walled off in your brain and then stored in your body. Mm-hmm. And so it's like your body is for the last year and a half has still been in Las Vegas. You're still, your body, even though you're going about your day, your your cells, your your autonomic nervous system Mm -hmm. is still there. Mm -hmm. And you know what that makes you? Tired of fighting it. Because you're fighting every day Mm -hmm. as though it's happening again and again and again. So when you you get any other symptomatology, of course, it... You're overwhelmed. The, the, the fight's it. over. I'm losing. Yeah. I'm losing the fight. I'm going to die. Yeah, the yeah. overwhelming nature of having a brain injury and not being able to handle anything on top of that. Right. And ask your Obviously. ask your therapist about neurobiofeedback too, because some of that really helps reprogram. Yeah, and and I'm thinking too a great a great idea too is the EMDR because it was a one singular yeah, event. Yeah, EMDR works for single events mm-hmm. often. Single I, events. You it had works some childhood really trauma well. too, though, right? With your dad or something? Yeah, the, the, yeah, the, yeah. The childhood trauma was um, just emotional, physical abuse. Yeah, uh, and, and so but this this you set and I'll let Chad chat about this. You mentioned this too, Chad, earlier. There are proclivities that set people up to have significant reactions right the body keeps the yeah. score this this is a kind of a question i actually had for you coming on here uh is your your perspective on on being predispositioned to ptsd mm-hmm. and the reason i ask this is because we have guys that come to our program that had have, have had significant combat trauma i'm talking like multiple mm-hmm. you know five six seven eight deployments haven't lost dozens of their buddies right in front of them and then they come back to come to our program and at the at mid midway through our program we'll ask them to start sharing you know, their story and they'll never start in Afghanistan. They always start when I was seven, when I was eight, when I was nine, Right, which leads me to believe there's a predisposition. Yes. There used to be a lot of literature on that. I remember I used to read it back when we were active in our program. I feel like there's a predisposition to having a type of mind that wants to go into combat that feels comfortable with that idea because of trauma. But, but, and Chad, that was your story, right? Yeah, in a way. So, so yes, there's so a way. So I'm going to seek out. Well, I'm going to solve levels. my problems of trauma through mm-hmm. becoming a combat warrior. And you're also comfortable because a lot of people who withstand trauma in early childhood think better, are faster, and are better in very, very highly evocative situations. And you function at a high level in these evocative situations, which then makes you prone to actually having more trauma going because you're the, going right. to be an EMT. Right. You're going yeah. to be an attorney. You're going to be a healthcare professional. Yeah. You're going to be a combat. These types of jobs aren't appealing to just anyone's brain. So, so to answer your question, Chad, some of it, of course, it's like everything in a human being. Some of it is genetic. Some of it is the environment growing up. And some of it is just the environment you're exposed to. I mean, no matter how you know you get, you know that better than anybody that there's a certain amount of environmental exposure that no matter how resilient you are, it's it's going to affect you. So it's it's all three. And and what we find though, for sure, if you had childhood trauma, it does set you up to have a higher probability of PTSD symptoms. It's almost one like it th- reactivates it. One of the things that I've seen firsthand is, and I I know this from studying now, the limbic system is actually absolutely incredible as it processes trauma to become more efficient to perform under to perform, but then it reaches a point, a tipping point. It shatters. Yeah. And then then you kick into what you got, which was dissociation, which is actually your parasympathetic system shutting everything down. And, and it's really, it's, it's the limbic system is what is all the information is coming out of the body and feeding into the limbic system, but it's actually the autonomic nervous system in your body that's having the problem. And the downregulation system becomes ineffective when you're in hyperarousal around the clock because you're not using the downregulation system. And so it's, it becomes inactive and then you need medicine right. to put, push the downregulation system. Our bodies are designed to do both, hyperarousal and then downregulation. But one or the other, not both not simultaneously, both at the same which time. is what trauma is. Right. I, have a, I have a physiological question yeah. Kind of in the moment of combat to ask you guys, I don't know if it's appropriate because it has to do with shooting a uh, shooting scenario. Go ahead. So 
So I was in a I was in Brian, a Brian, are you okay hearing this? Oh, you want to, dude? Yeah. I've always been fully transparent. Okay. <laughs> but no, like, no. But if you want it, but if you no, want, I'm a, an open book. No, no. but I'm, no, no. But hearing, a, he's hearing, gonna a, he's, he's going to no, tell I, about a shooting it's story. Fine. Right. It's fine. Everything is fine. Right. It's helpful to me. All right. <laughs> so I was close proximity. The a guy was in front of me with a rifle. I had a pistol. I'm, I'm shooting, and uh, you know, I, I've I've studied and learned a lot about the physiological symptoms. So everything slows down. I'm watching the casings ejected on my weapon. I didn't have any ear protection on, like I do now. And my partner, I didn't even know he was there, but subconsciously, I, I guess I knew he was, it was him. He was shooting over my shoulder. I never heard a, a explosion from my gun. I never heard an explosion from his gun. I heard these loud, like, like kind of like just snaps. Mm-hmm. And uh, my ears never had ringing or, or anything. So I know that would be auto exclusion, exclusion. However, about 20 feet in front of me, I could totally make out people talking, understand exactly every word they said. How could my, my audio... You, Shut down you, the banging, but still hear people talking. You have you have two muscles in your ear. This is something that Stephen Porges writes about that is used usually to attune us to vocal prosody. So when you're sitting with your therapist and she's going, I understand using her voice to kind of lyrically connect with you, our ear literally zooms into it. Babies you know, have this mechanism. Uh, I've never heard. I, I'm surmising, Chad, that it has something to do with that. That these two muscles probably adjust in some way as to keep your eardrum from moving, but somehow also, you know, allow this you know hyperacuity in one area. And of course, the brain is a big part of it too. Of course. Yeah. Can I can I throw up another question for all of you to think about too? In terms of what I physically felt at the shooting, I think this is therapeutic for me. Mm-hmm. After hearing Chad's story, so when I was in the middle of the shooting and the shots were going down it was so rapid you know mm-hmm. boom 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 and i was expecting to die you know during that first round i just mm-hmm. never thought i would survive that the bullets felt so close mm-hmm. and then there was a little bit of a break right mm-hmm. and i remember my body gasping like my mm-hmm. like like i You're couldn't like even breathe yeah. i couldn't breathe I, like thought, i thought like saliva was going to just spew out of my mouth like i was mm-hmm. like just like like what am i going to what am i doing mm-hmm. and i remember saying to myself and I wonder if that's still like if this is always going to be with me. I said to myself, "Part of my soul is dead." Like I said, mm-hmm. even if I live, mm-hmm. I feel like part of my inner soul mm-hmm. is decimated mm-hmm. and destroyed. Mm-hmm. And here I am, an hour, a year and a half later, mm-hmm. and I am really struggling mm-hmm. with the the energy. This uh, you knew Drew me. You knew me well, yep. Drew before the shooting. Yep. Mm-hmm. Always outgoing, always active, always out doing things, meeting people left and right. Now I feel, I still feel physically mm-hmm. like part of my inner body is missing. Mm-hmm. Is that is that is that a figment of my imagination? No, or it's, it's something no, visible. It's an injury. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, it's a, definitely it's, an injury. Yeah, and especially I think because. When you get so traumatized, especially in one incident like that, the your whole connection between your brain mm-hmm. and all the way down your central nervous system, all the way down your spine, what there is an interruption. And that interruption sounds like what you were receiving the information around your soul being like you're decimated. And then I think in your limbic system too, your level of trust, your ability to trust. Right. So thank you. So, so you, that so, has exactly. got to be completely right. decimated. Right. Thank so, you. so there's, so not only, not only there, there's you before the trauma and you after the trauma, right? right? And you sort of recognize that right in the moment. But I think that really died more than a part of you. A part of you was injured. But your sense of the world and your safe sense of yourself in the world is what really died. That's really the the aspect that is painful. I want to thank you for mentioning trust Mm -hmm. because I had trust issues before the shooting. Drew, we Mm -hmm. talked once before about it. With with, I didn't have a family foundation. Mm -hmm. You know, mom died when I was little. Dad was alcoholic. The emotional abuse. One time he pulled a gun out and pointed at me when he was drunk and I thought he was going to shoot me in the head. Oh gosh. Anyway, that's before. Now after, right. so so right. here I am with a single, a single parent, got a little girl, uh-huh. still aspiring, hey, one day maybe I'll get married, right? <laughs> maybe I'll have like a real family yeah. and here I am, the clock's ticking yeah. and now I feel like I'm even worse off. Mm. Like now I can't even, I try to go on a date. I have trouble looking, maybe you guys can call it, I have trouble looking at the woman mm-hmm. in her eyes. Mm-hmm. I, my head is shifting. Even my therapist is telling me, "You can't. Your your head is moving, dude. Like, can't you focus?" I have trouble. My point is, I now have trouble even trusting that I will ever, ever 
experience marriage and a family. I'm well, even worse off you're, than you're, I was well, you're, before. You're, this, this I can't is, trust. This is, I, this well, is the same thought as I'm going to die. Yeah. It's the same, oh, it's the same thing? Same, same stuff. Oh, oh, catastrophizing. Yeah, it's just catastrophizing. Oh. Yeah. And, and so I can piece. tell you, if you do work in therapy, and Chad, I'll let you bring in on this too, you will regain ability to connect. I think you'll be better. I, I would agree. I think you'll be better. better. You, you will be, mm-hmm. I, I could, if you really do the work, which takes a long time, I can almost guarantee you Shelly is right. You'll be better. These yeah. types. Why do you if, think I would be better? Because, because your you, original injury had, you, as you said, I've always had pre- trust issues. Your, your, yeah. your, your, your dad right. with the gun already made closeness an unsafe place. Okay. We can therapy can make it safe again. Yeah, you you are going to when you overcome and you reach your resiliency, you're going to be more well-rounded in all of the areas of life and you're going to be able to connect with people but you got to stay with you have to work yeah you got to stay with the world and i think the therapist now that you're going to begin to trust the therapist is going to mimic a whole relationship for you yes that you're going to be able to learn to interface with these folks and then when you go on a date you're going to learn how to connect you'll have a template you'll have a model Mm -hmm. for that connection chad do you agree I agree, and I and uh, I could speak not only from helping other people, but from personal experience myself, because I struggled with a lot of things before this happened, just from childhood, from life, and this situation that almost crushed and destroyed me. Ultimately, now I feel like it's made me stronger. Uh, I learned how to manage uh, historical issues of my past. I learned how to respond to things differently when I talked about making choices. Like now, when I just because I'm in a better spot now doesn't mean I don't think about bad things that happened in Afghanistan in my childhood and losing friends and those types of things. I still think about those things and they still bring emotion and, and, and hurt and pain and, and even anxiety at times, but I respond to them differently. And because of having experienced that, I've learned how to respond to hardships differently. And I think ultimately it's made me a, a, a more healthy uh, person, a better husband, a better father. And ultimately just is really just brought me in a different place. And I'm pretty thankful to be in now. And that's what's very, very good about recovery in general. Yeah, it's why it's why right? these opportunities are opportunities to. That's what we're interested in. That's why we don't like replacement therapies and stuff like that. We're interested in people flourishing, getting and, better than they ever knew they could be, and that's what these opportunities are. If you stick with it. But before I go to break, Chad, I want to go back to that that auditory thing you had. It's also possible that was just a perceptual distortion in the middle of a very <laughs> or, or a distorted memory, even in a highly tra- traumatizing situation. Okay, I'll be right back. Let's talk about CBD. It's, of course, everywhere today. It's a hot topic, and I get asked about it all the time. Bottom line, although there are way more claims, there is very little clinical evidence just yet. The science is lagging behind, but many people are using it and reporting anecdotally very good results. I want to first define exactly what we're talking about here. CBD or cannabidiol is an extract from hemp. And while you might associate it with marijuana, CBD is the non-high, non-rewarding component of hemp. And it's responsible for other effects, calming, sleep, not high. Now, about the products. There are a ton of them out there today. Forget the vast array of reported health benefits. It's important to be aware of what you're buying. I was recently introduced to a company called Select CBD, an Oregon-based company that focuses on high-quality ingredients and manufacturing standards. No hype. Their CBD-based products are available in a wide range of formulations and flavors, each of which is clearly described to you so you can make an informed decision without promises that seem too good to be true. Like I said, the reported benefits of CBD are compelling, and I'm excited to see how things develop with the science as this booming industry gets going. So if you want to try CBD, you might check out Select CBD. To learn more, go to drdrew.com slash select. That is my site, drdrew.com slash S-E-L-E-C-T. For a limited time, you can save 25% at checkout with the code DRDREW. And we are back. We have uh, another guest with us today. It's John Anderson. He was on a previous This Life podcast. He, John, and his wife, Moira, of course, we've got Brian and Chad still here. Uh, But John and his wife, Moira, uh, and two girlfriends were part of the uh, Las Vegas, Nevada mass shooting as well. And uh, last we were talking to you, Moira, Moira was struggling a little bit, right? John? Yeah, she was struggling. Yeah, she was struggling a little bit because she's, you know, she wasn't used to this. She's never been around it. And so I would say that it was, you know, somewhat traumatic to her. But, uh, you know, I think she's uh, done extremely well, made a great recovery. And uh, we were just talking about this last night. Um, and she's uh, she's doing phenomenally well. She's doing really well. And, John, you were in the military and seemed to not have been affected by this so much. 
You know, I, I, I really wasn't. I was in the Marine Corps for four years. I was in an infantry company. I was a machine gunner. I went to Lebanon in 1983 as part of the multinational peacekeeping force. I was there when, uh, when they had the Beirut bombing on October 23rd. Um, and I was involved in combat. And, you know, quite frankly, it, it, it really, it really hasn't affected me. Um, you know, why me? I don't know, but, but I mean, I have some of my own ideas, but it, but it really didn't. And so then when the route 91 event happened, you know, it, um, it really did, didn't have an effect on me. And so Chad, isn't this interesting? This is what we were talking about earlier, right? The, the predisposing risk factors, uh, John and Barbara must not have had, or whatever resiliency factors genetically, or whatever lack of trauma in their childhood, or whatever faith, whatever it is, they had it enough to deal with it. Would you agree, Chad? I would agree. Uh, And one of the things that I do want to speak on, not harp on, but speak on at least, is that, you know, I believe, you know, there's lots of factors for predispositions, and, uh, and particularly for resiliency. I believe faith's one of them, you know, listening to your other guests here from the Vegas shooting, and uh, the I forget the name of the one that's, that's still struggling. That's no, she's not. She, oh, Brian, Brian, here. Brian, Brian. And, uh, you know, he even spoke about it. I, I believe, you know, the wound is, is not just a physical wound. It's not just a mental wound. It's a soul wound. And if people believe, uh, you know, in faith or they're created or not, you know, we were never created to see or experience things like that. So it is a deep soul wound. And I think the restoration of faith, is a big factor in healing, but uh, definitely a big factor in uh, in resiliency. Well, and John and Moira, that was part of your. You have a very strong faith based look at the view of the world, right? Yes. Yeah, we're yeah we're we're both committed Christians, but but I think one of the things that uh, that really um, helps both Moira and myself is that we don't we do not look backwards, you know. So l- let me just give you an example: is that there are times where I'll be you know looking on YouTube. And I'll see, you know, like, uh, because I'm, you know, the Marine Corps was so important to me. I'll look at military videos or I'll look at stuff from Iraq and I- Afghanistan. And after a period of time, I started looking at this stuff going, you know what? I don't, this is not healthy for me to watch this. You know, I used to watch some of the gun camera footage from the Apache helicopters as they were basically shooting terrorists. And at first, you know, you kind of get this self-righteous stance that we're, we're doing the right thing and, and, and all of that. But then I started to think, you know, this is loss of human life. This is, uh, you know, I'm not in the military anymore. So I don't need to, I don't need to be proud of my heritage and my background and, but sit here and there and continue to look at something that I know is not healthy for me. So as I, you know, continue in life, I take that stance with a lot of things. There's music that I won't listen to. There's certain things I won't partake in because I realize that it isn't healthy for me, you know? So I just kind of steer my life in the direction for the things that are healthy for me. And ironically, the things that come across my way, the things that, you know, that you have to deal with every day, it seems like I have a lot less stress in, in dealing with those things. It's like now I'm able to cope with them better. It doesn't matter what it is, you know, whether it's, whether it's sitting in traffic and not having the patience or, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, financial issues with my business, no matter what it is, you know, the more that I, I strive to, to keep the things in my life that are not healthy for me away from me, the better I do. Well, I think that yeah. one of the things that I'm hearing you say in, that, that is important is that you've decided what is good for your true self. And that does heal uh, people because what is good for them and okay for them gives them a level of ownership over what they're going to allow in their lives and what they're not going to uh, participate in. And that does bring down, you know, a level of anxiety because you're, you're not, you're no longer exposing yourself to the, uh, the injuries or the things that were bothering you in the past. So that does sound like you have much more availability for your true self and what is really, truly, works for you i would argue though that the the looking back is it's good for a healthy person but if you've been injured with ptsd your body's in it all the time it doesn't have to look back it's always in exactly yep correct so and that's what that's that's makes it tough and and the the reality is this is a new field treating ptsd it really is Uh, especially all the different types of traumas because every type of trauma needs its own 
portion yeah. of specialty and then we need evidence-based practices mm-hmm. who we where we can then guarantee that if we do this it's going to actually help this person mm-hmm. chad any comment oh wait, wait, I mean, uh, wait, wait hold on the producer has something <laughs> i do believe i love what john's saying uh, and, I, and i also agree with what you said dr drew i mean john's john's basically put himself in a position where he's decided in advance how he's going to respond to certain things in his life yeah. based on the behaviors and choices yeah. he makes every day uh that works uh, i believe in that that's a big part of my methodology of how we help people uh at mighty oaks uh i also agree with you dr drew that when you're in the midst of of just you just feel like you're drowning. Yeah. It's, it's not easy to do that. Right. And that's where the right, uh, that's where the right community being around you to help you uh, through that. Is it interesting, is so though, Chad, is it interesting that in a weird way, even though John doesn't really have a big dose of PTSD, he was doing this in a weird kind of way, the same thing you were doing with MMA, right? Yes. Sort of massaging this stuff. And we have a tendency yeah. to do that as humans. We, we, we re-traumatize ourselves. It's crazy. We, we, we have a, an upset, a compulsion to do it. I mean, isn't it, isn't PTSD must be fascinating because, and I mean that in a good way, because you hear, <laughs> you hear John's experience and I'm happy that he and his wife are yeah. getting through it, but then you hear me and I'm in here today. Well, and you have, you didn't I, hear Chad's, I, I, Chad's pretty intense too. You, yeah. But I, 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 to be fully transparent with you, when I hear John's story, I do start feeling uh, a bit out, a bit inadequate again. I, I will. I would I, imagine you feel. I, you feel. Uh, who, what, what's wrong with me? You'd feel. What, what's you'd feel angry. He's, at, he's there, moving through it, and here I am. Well, you know, you'd feel angry and broken. Trauma. Angry trauma. and broken is what you feel. He, didn't, he may not have had. The well, he did. One of one of the things that I would like to add is that you know, if you were to, to look at me twenty years ago, I'm not the same person that. I am now. Okay. I mean, I was a completely different person. I mean, and I that was, was twenty years. You know, more easy, more easy to fly off the handle. More yeah. easy, you know, to get angry, to get upset. You know, uh, yeah, I, I don't mean, think a year. You and know, a half so it's a, it's it's a process. It's a yeah. it's a step, it's a long process. You know that I have to take. Yep, it's a long. Exactly, it's a long process. And the best thing that I think I ever really uh, learned, you know. Um, through my Christian faith is that I literally, some days I can take a day at a time and sometimes I have to take it a moment at a moment. Now, as I've gotten more mature and as I've walked through this, it's not so much the moment by moment. Now it's like, okay, uh, I'll just take it a day by day. And, you know, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, but there were days in my life that I literally had to take things moment by moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, Brian, uh, I would say this, uh, yeah. That word disorder, and I got two doctors on the line here. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I don't like that word disorder because uh, the most common thing that people refer PTSD as the body's normal response to an abnormal situation. Yeah. yeah. What's your body? What's your body seen and went through, and what you went and seen and went through is not a is not a normal situation. It's an abnormal situation, and your body's responding normally to that exactly the way it was created, designed to respond, and that's not a disorder at all. Your body's doing that in order to protect you from ever experiencing something like that again. And so the fact that you feel broken or disordered or, or in a state that you'll never recover from, is just not true. Uh, if you make the right steps and surround yourself with the right people, uh, you will react. And there are evolutionary theories. There are evolutionary theories that people get PTSD to be a canary in the coal mine for the rest of us to okay. keep everybody safe. So yeah. there, there's got to be some adaptive advantage to this, and that's what one of the theories is. Yeah, look, I mean, for me, the good news is I, I, I have been able to build better boundaries, for example, um, to, I, I think one of your guests had mentioned about uh, being around things that are more healthy for mm-hmm. you. So I've eliminated some of the negative in my world. I've learned that in therapy. That's helped me. Number one, number two, I've still been a good parent. So I'm validating myself. I've been there for my daughter. Mm-hmm. So I've been able to do that. Yeah. Number three, just to give a disclaimer out there for everybody in case they wanted to hire me, I'm still a good trialer. <laughs> I'm still really good. Yeah. I know I said I wasn't vigilant. Oh, please, God, help me. No, I know you're I'm good. I'm still good. I but know what, that about you. Let me clarify that. Well, what, I, what, I, what I meant by that is like when I go into court. You don't have the vitality you used to have. Yeah. yeah. You, you, yeah don't, example, you don't feel the vitality. Exactly. The, the judge would know That's it. a great thank yeah. you for helping me clarify yeah. that. Yeah. I. Because people say, I'll say, "Why well, I don't feel like I'm, I'm as good as I was. They're like, are you crazy? So it's in my mind. I feel like, yeah. I feel like maybe I'm not. But then what I meant by that is the effect. Yeah. The effect of my vocation. Like, I'll go into court. I, I'll come home. And I'll lay down like a little baby and sleep. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like, I, I never did that before. Yeah, I know. So, so but, but the good news is I, I, is I have been able to maintain my career yeah. and work on cases that 
make an impact. So that's helping me sure. move through the trauma. Yeah. The biggest hole I've got right now is really my personal world, mm-hmm. which we've already talked about. That's where I'm just that's really gonna get a lot struggling. Better. The, yeah. the one thing, I, and Chad, I'll have you follow on with this because I'm sure you face this kind of thing, is what, when, you have, when you have these injuries, the recovery is an opportunity to be better than you ever knew you could be. But you have to be open to... I don't really know who I'm going to be on the other side of this. Okay. Whoever it is, is, whatever I need to be is what I will be. Chad, you want to get to that? Because you, you thought of yourself probably very differently when you started your recovery process. Yeah, well, I mean, it talks about that hole that, hole that Brian talked about. I had, I had a big, giant hole inside of me uh, that was uh, tied to identity and purpose. And, uh, and so my identity and purpose was tied to my job. That was taken away from me. And... Uh, because of this, you know, what I went through. And so I had a very tough time. The MMA thing for me was something I did my whole life, but the surgeons in it was like, to me, just to put myself in it at such a high level was to try to fill that void of shame. And, uh, it really just to on the surface repair what I had lost. And so it was really, for me at the end, realizing that that work was coming to understanding of, uh, a finding purpose and finding something that made me want to get up and live every day again. And uh, I think that's very important, even if you're in a job that you love. And it sounds like, you know, Brian, you're in a job that you love. Being able to uh, find the things that will make you want to wake up every morning and, and be feel purposeful and live again and have something to to, to work forward towards. And, 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 like and, and, and I know the, and I know relationships are sort of your key, your flashpoint. And I think that same philosophy applies to your interpersonal experiences, too. you got to find sure. people that be around people that are good for you, that light you up, that feel, fuel you. And they may not be the people you're used to being around. That's that's yeah. what I'm saying. You got to be open. Yeah, the to, recovery process yeah. is a little bit. It, yeah. it, you have to withstand a little bit more um, intensity in in people helping you, and to be able to tolerate that. If you're not used to having a lot of therapeutic relationships in your life, sometimes it's a little bit daunting to to be around people who are so in tuned and, and so and are available and, for but you. Let me let me throw something out yeah. here, though. Okay. We, we live, in my opinion, we live in one of the worst cities in the planet Agreed. to be to be going Agreed. through PTSD. Agreed. Let me give you a great example. Walk, give you a great example. Walk down the homeless okay? encampments. That's right. traumatic well, for me. It, it, it's not. It's not only that. It's the disconnect that I feel living in. You're this in your big car city. all the time. It's exactly. Tough, yeah. yeah. And it's I, not I, a very strong no, community. Exactly. Based. I'm in. I'm in therapy the other day. Actually, two days ago, Anita looks at me and says, "She was kind of saying what you're saying, Drew. Mm-hmm. Hey, Brian, you're." you're to get your social life going again, maybe you join meetup.com or, or uh, join a hiking club or something. And so I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. There's not going to be any hot girls in the hiking club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So then, then she says to me, then she asked me the million-dollar question. Tell me, a guy friend, tell me a guy friend that you can really lean on. There you go. Okay? Mm-hmm. And you know what I did? Told her. There was- silence. Yeah. You just yeah. got it. Yeah. Three seconds of silence. I'm sitting there. Racking my Thank brain. You. Not that you're not a friend, Drew, but I just, you know, you're, I you're a friend. But, I get but look, it. look, I really, I, I mean, that was an eye opener. Yeah. Who am I really, who are my, you know, where's my mm-hmm. base of solid friends out here? I'm just being real with you. No, like, that, that's a I, really, I do it's not, very hard but, but, out here. But, but, it's, but here's the deal. That's the kind of thing. That's one little tiny thing. This is the kind of stuff that we're saying is going to make you better than you ever knew you could be. Because now you're going to be attending to stuff like that. And now like you're that. questioning that. And you're going to try oh, to find some quality relationships. You're going to be paying attention yeah. to this now. And this right. is something you didn't even know you didn't have. Right? And now you are now you need it, and you don't have it, and you're going to have to cultivate it. That's a good point. Chad? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah I mean, this is a, a very important thing. because and So in our program at Mighty Oaks, we bring guys, and we have this, this intensive, uh, this six-day intensive that they first go through. And we're, it's for PTSD for guys who have struggled with trauma. And you would think the classes would be loaded with, you know, what PTSD is and what it's not. And we, we spend one hour on PTSD. And what we spend the rest of our time on is, is daily choices and living. So we cover topics like, like, uh, margin. How do you manage your time? And someone might think, well, what's managing your time have to do with PTSD? Well, if you're trying to, if you already have stress, anxiety, and you're trying to fit 26 hours in a 24 hour day, it's not going to go well. Uh, <laughs> an- another topic that we have is brotherhood and that's understanding. Uh, how to have relationships with people in your life uh, like the ones you, you seem to, that Brian is lacking because we really understand that most people in your life are very – most people's lives are filled with just surface-level relationships. Exactly. And you don't have anyone to go to in those dark times. Mm-hmm. It's such a big factor in the, in the recovery process. Especially when you if you don't trust people. John, do you want to yeah, talk to that? Well, that's, that's sort of where that void – 
that's what motivates the void a little bit. John, you want to address this at all? <clears throat> still there? Um, you yeah. know, go ahead and say what you just said again. I, I, I need to hear it again. One well, more that, time. that we this the, the importance of uh, relationships and and if you're a male, other males that you can really count on. Oh, I, I can, I'll tell you what, this is, this is something that, that is, you know, right near and dear to my heart. And it's actually something that I recently learned about myself, but for the majority of my life, I've been kind of like a lone wolf because I've just kind of gone and done my own thing. And, and I re and I thought to myself that I was just typically a lone wolf, but what it was is that I wasn't, I just really wasn't an extroverted person and the relationships that I was seeking out was not in large numbers. Like, for example, my wife, she loves a full house. She loves <laughs> all kinds of people being over and things like that. But I'm more a one-on-one guy. And what I can tell you is, is that about 15 years ago, I developed a relationship um, with a strong Christian man that just basically presented himself to me. And he said he really felt led to mentor me. And I can tell you that one-on-one relationship that I had with him and the accountability that I had with him was paramount in me growing and becoming a, a, a better man. And even actually, you know, getting over some of my, what I would label as emotional immaturity and even some of my anger and, and things like that. And, and by, by moving forward with that relationship, you know, it really helped me, but it didn't really change me from being an extroverted person or an introverted person right, that's because I'm still that way. Right. I still seek out one-on-one or one-on-two relationships. And I've realized that that's just my personality. Right, mm-hmm. right. right. And, but, but this is something, Brian, that Shelly and I know well, and you're hearing over and over and over the same thing is that we affect each other. Brains change other brains. Central positively. Oh yeah. Positively and negatively, but, but also very positively. And so that time spent with other attuned others, whatever in whatever context works for you, that's where your brain regrows stuff. Literally, that injury heals. Literally, I I totally agree with that. I was, uh, you know, just to be a little bit transparent, probably about twelve or thirteen years ago, I was in a um, a men's group for for men that were abusive to their wives, and I never really thought I was abusive, but I was recommended to go to this group and. I met with the pastor of my church who had met with me for three years and listened to me complain about, you know, things going on in my marriage. He met my ex-wife one time and he said, John, I really, really think you need to go to this class. (laughs) This is not her. It's one visit. It's not her. It's you, John. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And he said to me, he said, I really think you need to go. And I said, well, I don't think I need to go, but I trust you. So I'm going to go. After going there for eight weeks, Finally, the light bulb just clicked on one day, and I realized that there were some elements, not not by and large, but there were some elements of me that were emotionally abusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, so one thing that I learned in this class, Dr. Drew, was that one of the things that you were talking about is this couple had had been involved in a seminar in with some doctor in Denver, Colorado, and he was saying that your neural pathways can reform. Yeah. And that when you start healing and they start changing, it takes anywhere from about two and a half to three years. Oh, yeah. Well, I stuck with this class for two years. And at the two and a half year mark, my life started to change drastically. Yeah, but I had to do all the hard work beforehand and keep putting the positive things in my life. But the, the other thing that I want to say when you're talking about people that are, you know, people that can be good for you, I can tell you that my wife, Moira, my wife now, she is so so good for my personality. Yeah. I mean, it, it's phenomenal how good she is for me for who I am. Well, and be fair, you've done a lot of work to kind of make, to receive that. To, yeah, to make that connection deep, and, and so yep, correct. Yeah, and and uh, so yeah, you're talking about literally rewiring the brain, and that is a slow process. Yep. The brain heals slow, but it does heal. But that Drew, that to to, to dovetail that um, about the brain, you know, regenerating. So my Anita, my therapist, asked me a great question the other day, just like what we're talking about, because she felt like I was pretty down, disconnected. I don't really have a lot. You know, I, I sound like a loser today, but, you know, she's like, you don't really have any friends. Oh, no judging yourself. No I feel like a total, a big no, L on my forehead today. No, we, no look, we, we, I, we don't feel that way, right, interestingly. But, you feel that way. Well, I, yeah. right. I, I feel, yeah. I, I, I don't feel real connected here. But she did help me feel a little bit better with this question. <laughs> she said, where do you go? where you do feel a little bit more connected. Mm-hmm. Great question, right? Mm-hmm. So she's probing. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it. And you know, Drew, I spend you know 
quite a bit of time in Austin, Texas. I've got you know a couple investments there and mm-hmm. got a downtown condo there. Um, I love being around water, lakes, you know, ocean, mm-hmm. mountains. So it, that was a g- great question. So it got mm-hmm. me out of my box a little bit. Okay, maybe I need to spend a little bit more time when I go to Austin. When I get off that plane in Austin, for some reason, I do feel a little bit more at ease. I've got a couple good mm-hmm. buddies there. Oh, there you go. Genuine. That's, that's there you right. Go. There so is. so. So I am trying, you yeah. know, trying to 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 write on paper, like where, Perfect. you know, where where can I go mm-hmm. to feel that a bit more of a connection, and then I need Good. to cultivate that. Do so it. I need to be like overtly take action and and do that. So I and thought I that like was productive, you're, right? You're Is that doing right? it right yeah. now. You're doing all the things that you need so to do. So you sensed I didn't want to come here today, right? right? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> it right okay. now. You're doing <laughs> right. it right now. You're showing up. That's why I was up. late. No you're kidding. showing up. Yeah, showing up, showing showing up is up. half the battle. That is half <laughs> the battle. You, you never know what information you're going to get when you show up somewhere. No, exactly. And we don't know what we don't know. So if we are encouraged by someone we trust to go into a support group or go into a therapy group, I did there I did group therapy for a year on intimacy issues because I don't trust as, as a patient. As a patient. I was so in therapy for that, eleven years. That was a long, long time ago. But I did that year commitment of a group where we talked about our lack of trust, you know, coming from trauma. Are you, a ther- are you in PTSD. therapy now? I am not currently you in had been, therapy. You had been... I've been in therapy for twelve years. Yeah, yeah. You know, so this doesn't come just overnight. I don't know what I don't know, and I can't learn what I don't know in isolation. A lot of it is experiential too. It's not intellectual. It's not about talking. No, it's it's very. It's um, it's hard to put even put it into words. So just prepare for that. It's it's about, but it's about doing these things. And what do you mean it's experiential? Well, like John said, doing something. Like John said, the light sort of his perspective changed all of a sudden. Like all of a sudden he's in a different place. All of a sudden he's a different person. How did that happen? That was not intellect. He didn't decide. Not, not a thinking thing. That was just he was all of a sudden looking at himself from himself being a, in a different place, in a different state. John, would that would that so be? So what, what it what you know what it was for me was this: is that every every week I would go to this class, and I committed to going to this class for one year, and you were only allowed to miss two sessions, and that was it. So you had to be very committed to it. So I committed to it. So at the eighth mark. I think to what, you know, what they normally talk about and there's, you know, different subjects on emotional abuse and stuff that night, because I was separated from my current wife, I was actually living in my travel trailer in Wisconsin, 20 and 30 below at night. And I was taking care of my elderly parents. I was sitting there on the couch watching some TV and I was watching my father talk to my mother and I listened to the tone he used, the mannerisms he used, and all of a sudden it just went on. That's exactly what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The and that's defined plays. as emotional abuse. You experienced and now I've got it. to change. Yeah, it. you experienced it differently. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, listen, it's been a very yep. interesting uh, conversation. Let's sort of wrap things up here. Chad, any any last thoughts? No, no. I just uh, one last encouragement for Brian is as you make step forward, steps forward, you know, you see something that pops pops up again. Don't let it set you back. I mean, yeah. we're I mean, right now, my son's in Afghanistan. I've been there eight times. I buried friends from there. Not an easy place. So I find myself lately having anxiety, nightmares that I never had before. But the way I respond to them differently, knowing who I am, how to move forward, it's really changed the way I handle this and, and, and my, my wife and I. So Thank you, Chad. Thank and you for your story, Chad. And your, and service, thank you for your service. And the organization, which is found, Mighty Oaks Foundation. You go to mightyoaksprograms.com. Dot org. I beg your pardon. MightyOaksPrograms.org. John, thank you as well. Any last words? Yeah, just, just Brian, that if you're struggling, one of the things that I used to do is that every time I had a negative thought or a negative feeling, I would replace it with three good positive thoughts or three good positive feelings. If I had to take a moment to force, you know, literally force that negative thought out of my head, I would. But I would replace it with three good things. Yeah, thanks for thank you, Chad and John. I, and my final c- comment is more of a question. If we could answer quickly, how do you guys and everybody deal with the agony the, the agony of me feeling like people don't understand me? Oh, so somebody, that's yeah, a good one for that, Chad. Yeah, Chad, go ahead. You, like, I just, yeah, Ch- Ch- Chad deals with that. I feel all the time. frustrated. I, I'm, Chad, I'm sure you deal with that. Nobody all the time. gets me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, this was this was almost a demise of my marriage. My wife doesn't understand me. She's never seen what I've yeah. seen. She's never been what I've been through. I said across my clinical counselor, and I immediately disqualify him because he's never been where I've been. He doesn't understand where I've been. 
they don't have to understand. My, I'm glad my wife's never been to Afghanistan and can understand where I've been. Yeah. I'm, I'm so thankful that the majority of the world wasn't at Las Vegas shooting and, and experienced that. And for you to understand that that's, you know, something you've endured and, and not people aren't going to understand what you've been through. But even though they don't understand what you've been through, people still can offer guidance, comfort, uh, friendship and support to you, despite the fact that they don't understand. It's why we put people in groups with other trauma survivors or, okay. or you know, find a similar kind of trauma because it's it's more efficient connection. You'll feel tr- more trusting. You'll feel more understood. It's you know we're trying to get you to connect, and that's one way, one road in. It's not the whole story, yeah. but it's if it's something you want to do, you should talk to that therapist about it. Okay. And is yeah. there any foundations that have been developed for that particular incident? And are there any? Has anyone gone forward to do any type of community based yeah. yeah, groups? Yeah, there have there there are sur- what's called survivor groups in okay. many different yeah. from the Vegas thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. There are oh, a lot you of should go. Cities. You should go visit that. Yeah. You should visit. I think that's I think, maybe a piece, yeah. right? But does that does it doesn't fix the problem oh. when, I, when I have to explain to somebody why I don't want to go out on a Friday night? Why I, why I don't feel like don't being around any, you? You don't what? owe anybody any okay. explanations. Right. Yeah, you don't owe them an explanation, not at all, all right. not one yeah. bit. And I would I would agree with what Chad had to say. I am glad that my wife does not understand what I saw when I was in Lebanon. I mean, it was horrific, and I, I'm, she doesn't need to. But here's one thing that I learned about that, is that if I keep reaching out, expecting people or wanting people to uh, understand me or understand where I'm coming from, the only thing it did was isolate me. Yeah. yeah. So, as yeah. a defense mechanism, I hear that that kind of comes up as yeah. as a defensive. It keeps like, you untrusting. It does keep you yeah, untrusting. Keeps you locked. It, it keep you continues locked. to push that. Yeah. Agenda. It's all right. It's no. It's a normal part of this yeah. whole thing. Okay. It's very yeah. It's all right, gentlemen, normal. John, Chad, thank you so much, guys. We appreciate it. And Brian, uh, thank you for sharing. Yeah. yeah, yeah thank you sorry, so sorry, much. Guys. This thank is, you uh, so much. Hey, don't send me a bill for this session. No, no, <laughs> but, but, but bottom line is, bottom line, and I know everybody feels this. I am so sorry. You were you were suffering. Thank I'm you. sorry you're suffering, absolutely. but 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 I'm in, in a in a strange way almost thrilled that there could be some real stuff on the other side of it. Somebody, Drew and I don't like to there go will out be on night there will be. You're already in the process. <laughs> yeah, yep. you're already in the process by coming here today and talking out loud about yeah. where you're where you're at. Well, if I ever get married, you four are invited. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going. <laughs> Party. All right. All right, guys. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Shelly. Great job as your, as your host today. Yeah. What's that? Happy, Happy guys. Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day, everybody, and we will see you next time. All right, that's about it for this episode of This Life. Thanks for listening and subscribing on your favorite platforms. Rate us five stars and tell a friend. Also, be sure to visit drdrew.com for the latest news. We'll tell you where you can find all of our health-related content, including the latest in-depth series, The History of Opium. You can now listen to it on the weekly Infusion podcast. We have some great and very interesting and appropriate interviews with key historical players in the history of opium. We're excited about our newest podcast, Dr. Drew After Dark, which has been described as a dark web reboot of Loveline. It's the hottest guest spot for all the most popular comedians. Beware, it is for a mature audience. It is kind of a reboot of Loveline. You can hear the episodes first in a podcast form Thursday. Then on Friday, you can watch all the video episodes when the YouTube page drops on the Your Mom's House YouTube channel. New episodes every week. Subscribe, tell a friend. Also on Doctor.com, you can find Swole Patrol, our health and fitness podcast with Mike Catherwood. If you want something a bit more refined that will expand your intellectual horizons, please subscribe to the Dr. Drew Podcast, where I feature a wide variety of very interesting and important guests. Get in-depth interviews there. Last but not least, me and Adam, Adam and Dr. Drew Show Podcast. It's a lot of fun, and we are still together, and you can get it five days a week. So go to drdrew.com, please tell a friend, and we thank you for it. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.